Welcome back once again to Pastor Life Podcast from Pinnacle Leadership Associates. I'm Rhonda Blevins, Pinnacle Associate and Pastor of Chapel by the Sea in Clearwater Beach, Florida. And I'm David Brown, Pinnacle Associate and Pastor of the Welcome Table in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Today we continue our conversation around church life and the new normal, whatever that might be. And we're looking at recent shifts in church life on both the micro and the macro level. It's really been a great season so far with some good conversations, but I'm really excited about our special guest today, Dr. David Gushy. David Gushy is an ethicist, a pastor, an author, and an advocate. I know Dr. Gushy from his work as the Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University, where I happen to earn my Doctor of Ministry degree. I had the privilege of his leadership for one of the D-Men seminars that I participated in. Dr. Gushy is also the elected past president of both the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Christian Ethics, um, signaling his role as one of America's leading Christian ethicists. Uh, He's a prolific author, a co-author and editor of more than 27 books, and too many academic book chapters to count, um, (laughs) journal articles, other reviews. Uh, You may recognize some of his works like Introducing Christian Ethics, Uh, Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust, Kingdom Ethics, and the Sacredness of Human Life. His book, Changing Our Mind, has sold over 25,000 copies, and I personally know a number of churches that have studied that book when considering their own stance or approach to LGBTQ inclusion. Absolutely. And perhaps most prescient to our conversation today, uh, Dr. Gushy is the author of After Evangelicalism in which he charts a theological and ethical course for post-evangelical Christians. David, do you consider yourself a post-evangelical Christian? You know, I am not sure that I have ever (laughs) thought of that language for myself, post-evangelical Christian. Uh, Certainly, I kind of came up in the evangelical tradition, but I have kind of moved away from some of those labels and there's so many post-whatevers out there. I'm just not quite sure what to make of all of them. How about you, Rhonda? Well, I think of myself as a recovering evangelical. So maybe Dr. Gushy has some help for, for me and for us today. What do you think? Let's see what we can learn about evangelicalism and about the new normal with Dr. David Gushy. Welcome to Pastor Life Podcast, Dr. Gushy. We're so glad that you're here. Thank you for the invitation, Rhonda and David. It's it's good to hang out with you all today. Yeah, yeah. thanks for being here. And uh, even with all of those uh, accolades we just mentioned, Rhonda, I think he gave you permission to just call him David today. I, I'm going to try. You know, this is my old professor here, so I'm going to try to call him just David. But I have two David, so it's going to get confusing. That's true. David G or DPG. A lot of my friends call me DPG. All right, if you get DPG. confused, you can call me DPG. Like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? RP, RBG. RBG, right. your DPG. The initials are enough. You know? <laughs> well, and <laughs> I have good. been known to go by DMB, uh, my middle initial M, Michael. Um, I'm so or, confused. Or, uh, well, <laughs> we won't get into old uh, nicknames, so we'll just keep it at that. <laughs> so, David Gushy, are you a post-evangelical? I think I already know the answer just because I know you and I've read some of your stuff, but let me hear your answer to that. Are you a post-evangelical or are you a recovering evangelical like me? Uh, I like the language of post-evangelical because for me it means I identified as an evangelical Christian in my writing and in my religious identity uh, for a long time, 
And then I realized it didn't fit me anymore and I did not want to be associated with it. It's a subculture and it's a subculture that I now think is not very healthy and Mm. that I don't want to be associated with, especially in the U.S. It's a little bit different, a little bit different in other parts of the world, maybe. But I, I would say that my theology remains in many ways pretty mainstream, but that subculture I want to renounce and to distance myself. So that's how I'm in the post-evangelical space. And and maybe in terms of sort of backing up a half a step, I know in your book that you really kind of dive deeper into defining evangelical and exactly what that is uh, sort of before we figure out what it means to, to move beyond that. I would say here is where I do a little bit of deconstructing, historical deconstructing. Most evangelical scholars have liked to define evangelicalism theologically, and often that had to do with the doctrine of inerrancy or of Scripture, or there's a famous quadrilateral, a four-step test offered by a British scholar named David Bebbington, and we could go into that. But I've concluded that the best way to locate that word, at least in the U.S., is as a reform movement within fundamentalism in the 1940s to try to moderate the public perception of fundamentalism, to differentiate a group from fundamentalism and to call themselves evangelicals, but to keep them separate from mainline Protestantism. So mm-hmm. it was the, the effort to craft a third way between fundamentalism and mainline Protestantism, but that in some ways, in some ways, while a new subculture was created, at the bottom, the fundamentalism of thinking never really changed. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and so, so evangelicalism was, you might call it, a failed effort to create a new, a new religious path for Protestants, but not a failed effort if you think about it in terms of the creation of a subculture with schools and parachurch organizations and congregations, colleges, universities, consumer products of all type, music, <laughs> books, uh, various kinds of things that m- many of your listeners may be familiar with if they had any exposure to that world. Yeah. Would my WWJD bracelet count among that? <laughs> yes, yes, that's part of it. Uh, we could talk about music, and I'm sure we would recognize oh, yeah. some of it. Um, right. Uh, specific names and figures. Uh, the biggest icon in the evangelical subculture was Billy Graham for a certain generation. Sure. Right? Schools like Fuller Seminary, uh, organizations like Youth for Christ, you know, uh, Campus Crusade. You know, in my book, I have a, you know you are or have been an evangelical if you can recognize these 25 names or items. People love that part of the book. And most people who read it say, yeah, I got about 23 of them or 24 of them. You know, I think I, I got 21 if I remember correctly. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. What the word <laughs> seems to have shifted in, I think, the past decade. What do you think the word evangelicalism or evangelical means in today's parlance? Well, that's a really interesting question. I think the founding evangelicals wanted it to mean something like seriously devout Protestant Christians who want to win the world for Christ and to live for Christ, who believe in Jesus uh, as the path to salvation, who take Scripture seriously, that kind of thing, right? Right. 
and but are not angry at anybody. They're they're they have a positive agenda rather than a slash and burn separatist agenda. I would say that this began to morph some with the rise of the Christian right in the 70s and 80s with people like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and the Christian Coalition and James Dobson, when essentially the agenda moved over to become a, um, a political agenda. I right. think that confidence in, you might say, if we could, we could win the world for Christ through an evangelistic message and loving our neighbors as ourselves and preaching Jesus. But I think that confidence in that began to decline. And so there was a shift towards politics. We win the world, or we, at least we advance our goals by electing Republican politicians and riding on their coattails. And I would say that that has only intensified in the last 10 years. And of course, metastasized, to use a medical term, mm -hmm. with Trump and Trumpism and the evangelical embrace of Trump. I wonder, and I feel like that's sort of where, for me, that was a lot of my formative years, both as I began to even have some sort of religious and political identity in the world, and then particularly those were the early years of, of my seminary education and then on into church ministry, and to just see the way that the collision or the melding, or whatever word you want to use, between evangelical as a, a primarily sort of a, a stance toward toward neighbor and toward sharing the gospel, uh, that shift into more of a political movement, I just see that as significantly damaging to the way that we relate to our neighbors and to one another. And it's almost like the, uh, the opposite of what we would want to hold on to of the love, serve, and share the gospel with your neighbor. I think it's been immensely damaging. And I, I have a foundational life experience that I can always go back to, not that it was everybody's experience, but when I, when I talk about this, people totally get it if they're from this world. I wandered into a Southern Baptist church in 1978 as a 16-year-old, uninvited on a Friday afternoon, spiritually hungry, looking for something. I literally wandered into that church on a Friday afternoon. And, you know, they didn't tell me about the Republican Party. They didn't tell me about how I needed to vote against abortion. I met the youth minister who was an evangelist. And he said, hey, we're doing an activity tonight. Why don't you just come? And actually, there was another one the next night, and then there was everything on Sunday, and then there was another one on Monday. And by Monday night, uh, I was praying the sinner's prayer and inviting Jesus into my heart as my Savior and Lord. Remember that language, right? Absolutely. And, and, and then they were so warm and so welcoming, even though I was a mess. And then they discipled me, gave me Bibles to read and a program of study, and had me in church every time the doors were open. And... The agenda was grow close to Christ, get to know the Bible, love your neighbor, and tell everybody about Jesus. That was the agenda. Uh, and, and I'm so glad to have the foundation of that kind of church experience growing up. I grew up within a church like that, and so, you know, my conversion story was was earlier. It was probably, uh, you know, one of those almost child baptism kind of situations. And uh, I don't really remember not being around that kind of culture. And so it really formed and shaped me. I'm very grateful for it. 
But I sort of see the direction that evangelicalism has gone and then the way that generations behind me and my, my children would want very little to do with that version of faith. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's sad, you know. I mean, and maybe that's one reason why I don't use the language of recovering evangelical in a sense, because, Rhonda, you mentioned that phrase, because I was formed in something that was largely healthy. I mean, there were some problems with it. It was very heaven and hell oriented. It had a, a view of the world. There were people who were following Jesus and people who weren't. The latter were all going to hell, and it was a huge challenge to get them saved as quickly as possible. So that was the that was the urgency, right? And it was pretty rigid sometimes in its moral code, you know, no drinking, no cussing, no dancing, no, you know, no card playing, you know. Oh, I mean, the purity culture was really my era as well, you know, the, the purity culture. Uh, yeah, no, no premarital sex. And, right, yeah. yeah. I was a little bit ahead of that, and that language wasn't quite in the, uh, in the area. But, but I'll tell you what, I'll take that over snarling right-wing politics in the name of Jesus and fighting culture wars and crushing the libs and all of that, kind of a moral relativism in order to get the right person elected president, you know, that was a later development. In, in essence, one of the things it did was to drive out of the churches anybody who didn't share that politics, right? Or to make them feel really marginalized. So it heavily politicized the understanding of Christianity and it right-wing politicized the understanding of Christian politics. So you had to both be heavily political and right-wing to qualify. Now, Rhonda, you asked about how the definition has changed. Recent polling has shown that a lot of people now identify the word evangelical more with somebody like Trump than with somebody like Billy Graham. Evangelical means right-wing reactionary politics. It doesn't even have a religious identifier as much anymore for a lot of people. Right. To me, it's it's a voting block. You know? A voting block. It, yeah. It's been relegated to that. And kind of going back to the language, you know, I, I kind of tease about being a recovering evangelical, and I say it tongue in cheek, but there is a, a bit of truth, right, in any kind of joke. And the truth is, there's a mild level of PTSD, from being in evangelical circles. And just my own story, if we're sharing a little bit about ourselves, as a woman feeling called to the ministry in evangelical circles and, and the particular branch of evangelical that I was, you know, being told I couldn't do that. And several sort of microaggressions, you know, several like hundreds, <laughs> maybe thousands mm. of microaggressions along the way. So yeah, there's a there's a mild degree of PTSD. So I'm in a sense recovering and growing and, and healing from that as I've made my way. What what I feel clearly is out of evangelicalism now. That makes a lot of sense, and and this is a good time for me to own that one reason I was welcomed so warmly when I walked into that church in the summer of 1978 was I was straight and I was white and I was a male, and when within six months. I was already reporting that I felt called to be a pastor. I represented the demographic who they could say yes to on that. Right. Right? Yeah. So I was what Southern Baptists used to look for, you know, the born-again convert who we can disciple, who can then win souls for Christ and stuff. But it really helped that I was straight and that I was white and that I was a male. Yeah. If, I had, if I had been a black woman or a gay man, young man, to wander into that church in the summer of 1978, the reception would have been very different. Mm -hmm. And and the report of, you know, basically PTSD coming out of church experiences, this is fueling the exodus of people 
out of evangelicalism, whether they even know that's the the world they were in, they're leaving. They're leaving church. Right. And they're leaving because they were wounded there. Mm -hmm. They don't just disagree like, oh, I don't believe in inerrancy or I think they're too rigid on science or theology or something. People are reporting a great amount of trauma. And there's a hugely growing field of basically religious trauma, trauma counseling. Yeah post-church therapy, all of that stuff. And, you know, our our community, if we were part of that, we contributed to that, you know. Um, sure. For women, there was both the patriarchy and the purity culture burdens, right? right. Mm -hmm. For LGBT people, it's endemic. Um, ever since I wrote Changing Our Mind in 2014, I've gotten to know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of LGBT plus people who are reporting to me what it was like to be traumatized by their own families, by their mm -hmm. own churches and pastors. If we're talking about the new normal, the new normal is for church, people are less willing to be traumatized by a religious community than ever, and they're not putting up with it, and they're looking either to leave or for religious spaces where they can be safe. Absolutely, yeah. And maybe that leads a little bit into looking at that exodus from the evangelical congregations from a from a different angle, from the angle of potentially those religious spaces that they're moving into, if they are continuing to, to seek out a religious space, whether that's the mainline churches, whether that's some form of micro church or alternative divergent type church experience, or something completely outside of what we would think of as a as a congregation or a traditional religious space. So I wonder, maybe starting with mainline churches, if there's a movement of folks out of evangelical churches and into mainlines, how does that look from the mainline side of things? There is some movement in that direction. The reason, in part, is if people are leaving about kind of some of the things we've been talking about, they want a more spacious theology, they want gender equality, they want LGBT plus inclusion. Uh, they don't want right-wing politics shoved down their throat from the pulpit. It would be natural that they might go from the non-denom evangelical church or the Southern Baptist Church over to the United Methodist Church or the Presbyterian Church or the UCC or whatever, right? The Episcopal Church. Episcopal churches are getting a fair number of evangelical refugees, interestingly. So for the mainline churches, it becomes an opportunity to grow, but also to change, because I think post-evangelicals bring to mainline churches certain needs. They're still looking for serious engagement with Scripture. They may be looking for contemporary music rather than the old hymns out of the hymn book, right? They may not even understand how to work their way through a liturgically oriented service, you know? <laughs> I remember visiting an Episcopal church for the first time, and, you know, here's the program, and here's the prayer book, and here's the hymn book. I don't have enough hands to hold everything they're asking me, you know, can you figure this out? What, you know, what am I supposed to do here, you know? It's a little different from looking at a screen with, you know, with printed uh, song lyrics on it, you know, and your hands empty, except for maybe your the big Bible you brought into church, right? So, right. you know, so, so there's like worship style differences, kind of church culture differences. But I think that post-evangelicals can be a source of renewal and some maybe constructive change for some of the mainline churches. And I think, I do think, I've said this, I do think the mainline churches need to be ready for post-evangelicals with their wounds and their needs 
And, you know, it may be like the last stop. If they can't find something in a mainline church, they might be, that might be the last time they try, you know? Yeah. One of the things I've been taught and have observed as well is that evangelicals tend to be Christocentric, mainline churches tend to be theocentric, and so evangelicals moving into mainline spaces are perhaps bringing their Christocentrism with them, and just an anecdotal take on that is uh, the church where I'm serving now as senior pastor, as a post-evangelical I'm now in a mainline or a traditionally mainline kind of congregation. And early on, some of the parishioners said, you sure do talk about Jesus a lot. Uh. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I kind of do. I kind of still like Jesus. So your your thoughts on that, is that going to be a challenge for mainline pastors and, and churches? By the way, first thing, chapel by the sea. Okay, when's the invitation coming, Rhonda? Okay, that, <laughs> Anytime. That, that's the first Anytime, thing I want to say. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm here shivering in Atlanta today. The weather has <laughs> dropped, and take me to the chapel by the sea. Rhonda's um, a missionary to those all, along the coast tough. of Florida. It's tough. It's really yes. Tough. I mean, some people have sacrificial callings. They really do. Um, <laughs> so here's a a big picture thing, and it's a good chance to say this: evangelicalism never really cohered around a theology, hmm. and it was partly because a lot of the fundamentalism just kept going right, in some circles. But there was also evolutions in different directions, kind of, um, I don't know, some pretty thin theology in a lot of evangelical churches. In some ways, evangelical identity was formed by music more than anything else. Hmm. In some settings, some of the music is, the theology is is pretty thin, almost romantic, I'm in love with Jesus mm-hmm. type, you know, right. singing, you know. I do think that kind of Jesus and me sentimental religion is a major strand of of evangelicalism and not not serious Trinitarian theology, you know? In general, not a lot of systematic thinking mm. about theology. Mm-hmm. And also, some of us, the story we were told is what God is doing in the world is recruiting people for a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what I was told. Right. So, you know, worshiping the triune God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or however we name the triune God now, and talking about the role of the Spirit and theology of creation and redemption. And I think a lot of that never got very well developed in evangelical mm-hmm. churches. What was more, it was more of a Jesus and me privatism or personalism. Right. And so that's something that, uh, that it's interesting that your people must have encountered in some of your language. And, um, <laughs> Uh, that's part of the culture shift, I think, as people go over to the main line. The other thing to your original question, David, not everybody's heading towards the main line. I think post-evangelicals are going. One thing that's happening is evangelical churches are evolving to become post-evangelical in some cases, mm-hmm. or they're splitting. They're splitting. And if the main reason for a split is usually LGBT plus inclusion, and people who are non-negotiably committed to inclusion often end up breaking off from those who are non-negotiably committed to exclusion. And so that's where some post-evangelical churches are developing. And there are different kinds of spaces like podcasts and living rooms and people kind of wandering their way into new forms of community. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and that's really the congregation that I serve now is a a group of disciples who are trying to follow Jesus together 
And at different points, many of us were very involved in traditional congregations, evangelical or slightly to the main line or probably somewhere in between, you know, kind of the, the my background is in cooperative Baptist fellowship churches and, you know, sort of some, somewhere in the, in the middle lands between mainline and, mm-hmm. and something else. So, you know, I feel that longing and then the, the connection with people in our community who are just looking for something that, that, that sort of gets beyond the preservation of the institution that, that they have yeah. found in other places. Um, so, so I really do see that as well. I, I think there are different models emerging for what it means to be a community of disciples together. And I, I think that's refreshing. And I think that's where the post-evangelical, you know, with all of the, the post-whatevers, those exist because the next thing hasn't quite emerged yet. And so I think we're seeing yeah. some of the next things emerging where we're finding people find spiritual homes in other places. It's really interesting to watch. Um, we're recording this in mid-November, and all fall I've been engaging post-evangelical spaces, both in Europe and here. Hmm. Um, the dynamics are similar in the German-speaking uh, post-evangelical world, by the way, in Zurich and in Frankfurt and all over all over Germany. So. So it's been really interesting to see the same pattern, rigid theology, exclusion of LGBTQ people, patriarchy. The politics is not as much of a problem in Europe as it is here. So they have that advantage over us. But <laughs> And people leave or they're pushed out, but they still want to follow Jesus. And they want a place to do that. And they're not all, not all leaving for the same reasons, and so what they're looking for is not always the same. And in the U.S. too, what in general people are looking for is a community in which they are accepted, they don't have to defend their themselves, a community that is egalitarian in its vision, a community that has a positive vision rather than a negative culture wars vision, Yes, in which people are given the resources for for having the strength to live their lives in difficult circumstances and to follow Jesus faithfully, they don't care about denominational labels. They may not even care about being in a church building. They want a community. Yeah. Now, it's going to be hard to support full-time pastors, um, I think, in this new landscape. There's less money, and there's maybe less infrastructure. But if churches people who love Jesus gathering around and supporting each other in that quest to follow Jesus, those spaces are, are everywhere. For sure. You David know, knows a know. little something about that, right? How many jobs do you have, David? Are you three yeah, or I have, four? Yeah, I have a number of them. And right. uh, the, the one that <laughs> uh, puts me in front of people preaching is not one that generates any income, uh, which is fine. Oh, that's it's interesting. Yeah. It's very freeing in that sense. It is. Because you don't yeah. have to be afraid that that you'll lose your job on a given Sunday and your source of income because because you hit a politically sensitive subject or something. Mm-hmm. Now, I do th- I do see all these church buildings around the country that are are going to end up being sold, closed, or become multi-use community centers or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the other thing I would say about the main line is they also are struggling with. I mean, some of the, like, you take a United Methodist Church, I mean, they're fighting over LGBT inclusion in a huge way, right? You know, and um, the the Presbyterians have split on these lines. And 
uh, the Episcopalians are not all united on on inclusion issues, right? Right. I want to tell you all and your listeners about an organization that I've encountered that is new, but that is showing promise to me. It's called the Post-Evangelical Collective, hmm. and you can find them online. And uh, I, I spoke at, a, at their second annual conference this fall. It was in Denver, and they are networking all different kinds of post-evangelicals. So at their conference, you had Vineyard Church people and Evangelical Covenant Church and Pentecostals and... Baptists and Methodists and Mennonites and and so on. What they all have in common is they've been in the evangelical subculture. They're not happy there anymore. Or they've been kicked out. They're on the other side, and they're looking for community. And it's almost like the birth. Well, like you said, it's the birth of a new thing. And what appears to be non-negotiable is egalitarianism and inclusion. And a desire to follow Jesus on the other side of those arguments. They don't want to be in the arguments anymore. They want to have resolved the argument and be on the other side of that. And once you've done that, then you can move forward and build community. And that's what they're doing. Right. That sounds uh, kind of wonderful, actually. Yeah. Well, um, as and by we the way, have... this is Go different. Ahead. This is different from the, I'm going to have to say something about the CBF, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. This is different from the kind of decision not to decide. <laughs> that that i think is what is what they did right um this was a the people i'm talking about have decided inclusion of everyone every part of god's family is non-negotiable now that we've decided that how do we build churches where we're not arguing about that because we've already decided it ouch i know but it's true yeah so (laughs) i um you know could sing a a dirge i suppose (laughs) right and you know Rhonda, you and i were a part of part of uh, an effort a decade ago along those lines, right? You know? Yeah, yeah, you tried. Yeah, so, <laughs> but you know, what's what's cool is, I mean, LGBT people themselves, they don't want to spend their lives arguing about no, whether they're included. No, 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 they're done, you know? they're done. I'm they're done. done. I'm done. Right. I, I would not put myself in a situation or serve a church that was not fully inclusive anymore. I mean, I'm just done. It's done, right? So, so yep. once we've decided, then we can just be followers of Jesus together. That's right, absolutely, yep. Yep. Well, um, as we kind of wind down the conversation, I want to tease out the new book that you're working on, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. That's a scintillating title. (laughs) Can you tease out for us who those Christian enemies are? I have a guess, but I'll let you maybe uh, spill the beans. Yes, this (laughs) 56,000-word book manuscript is is now uh, in the hands of Erdman's. And will be coming out in October of 2023. My hypothesis is that a significant chunk of Christians in many parts of the world are willing to sacrifice democracy for what I call authoritarian reactionary Christianity. What they're reacting against is cultural liberalization and pluralism. LGBT inclusion and equal rights is a big part of it. But Mm -hmm. in general, the idea of a modern democratic society uh, where everyone has equal rights in which Christianity is not on the throne, we have religious pluralism and separation of church and state and diversity of opinion and diversity of lifestyle. There's been negative Christian reaction to that since that modern world began. But what we've seen in the U.S., but it's also true in other countries that I study in the book, is that the reaction to this modern world 
is so fiercely negative on the part of many Christians that they're willing to sacrifice democracy to try to reverse it. Wow. And I think that helps to explain a lot of the Trump phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and, and even the post-Trump phenomenon. If you hear somebody say, this is a Christian country, the values of Christianity should prevail, nothing should be legal that is in violation of Christian morality, and if people don't really want that, well, they should be overridden. That is yeah. a th- authoritarian, reactionary Christianity. And now the good news coming out of this last election is there were a number of candidates who had that vision who were put forth as senator candidates and governor candidates mm-hmm. and so on. And most of them lost. Except for Florida. Except for Florida. Right? Come on, Rhonda. Weren't you knocking I'm on trying. doors down there? <laughs> yeah, do something, Rhonda. You know, so so I do think that that there is a part of our country that would really be happy to have kind of established conservative Christianity as the state law uh, and religion of the land, and they're essentially moving in that direction. But the country as a whole doesn't want it, just barely, but on the whole doesn't want it. So anyway, the book analyzes anti-democratic trends among conservative Christians, the the sources of those trends, and, and makes a kind of a humble case why Christians should support democracy, even if the culture's don't always look like we want them to look like, even if the outcomes are not always what we want. Why democracy is better than tyranny? You have to defend that that prospect these days, and that's what I'm I'm doing in the in the book. It, it's crazy that we have to defend that these days. Well, and I wonder yeah. what um, what's the the role or or what sort of presence mainline churches, pastors, leaders need to be in terms of pushing back against this Christian nationalist, you know, effort. In the country, how, how do we? Are, are there certain ways that you would would spell out or suggest that that we ought to be working in our local arenas to combat some of this? Well, I think that um, democracy, the norms of democracy, need to be rearticulated because we've kind of taken them for granted until they've been really challenged. So, in the book, I. I lay out some kind of internationally recognized standards for what a democracy looks like, you know, like free and fair elections and civil liberties and religious tolerance and pluralism and that kind of thing, the way government functions and the things that government is not allowed to do, all of that. So we, we kind of go back to civics class. Here's how a democracy works, okay? And here's why Christians, uh, beginning in the 1600s at least, began supporting democracy. For example, the significance of freedom of conscience. Even if we don't like what somebody else believes, they have to be given the freedom to believe it, just as we want the freedom to believe what we believe, right? And that every vote matters, but every vote, everybody should have the same right to vote and have the, have their votes count. And in the book, I, I give resources in the Christian tradition for why we have supported democracy. I think it's appropriate for mainline pastors to make a renewed case for democracy the way that like Reinhold Niebuhr did during the 1940s, you know, mm. um, we have to make the case again for mm. it. And that's not partisan. It's just kind of a citizen citizenship, you know, but also I think it's, it's not self-evident from reading the Bible why we should support democracy. There's a tradition that mm-hmm. got there. We have to renew that tradition in our time before it slips away from us. I guess some of this conversation, some of the things you're saying right now is why I would probably, even though it's still down the list of, of, of pieces of my identity, I would still identify as a Baptist before I would identify as an evangelical. So yes, 
In the book, I talk about how Baptists made a, a signature contribution to democracy very early, partly because Baptists were beat up by religious establishments in Europe and in North America in the colonies, and Baptists demanded separation of church and state and religious liberty in the 1700s and 1600s even in, uh, in England. That tradition, in fact, one of the things I say in After Evangelicalism is let's renew the best insights of our specific traditions. And the Baptists had some good insights, both in church life and in public life. And so I find myself striking some Baptist notes. I find myself talking about, you know, John Leland and, uh, you know, and so on. Roger religious, Williams. Roger Williams, <laughs> religious liberty. There's There was genius there. Yeah. Uh, and it isn't because we're loosey-goosey liberals. The reason you have to have human rights, civil rights protections, including religious liberty, is because conscience matters, and you cannot coerce people in matters of religion. And that's what these establishmentarian Christians are wanting to do right now, to run roughshod over dissenting opinions to establish a Christian nation along the lines that they believe in. That, that was rejected in this country in 1789. Maybe we should not reconsider that one, you know? Right. It's terrifying, right. really. I mean, yeah, it really is. Well, let's conclude our podcast today, but I invite you, Dr. Gushy, to offer a hopeful or encouraging word to the pastors and clergy listening in. I think it is a time of, of uh, new beginnings and creative pastors who can just kind of get back to basics, tell people about the triune God, <laughs> tell people about the God who loves them in Jesus, forming disciples, studying the richness and the complexity of Scripture, loving neighbors. That message is still resonant with people. Just do that, and I think you'll find people coming your way. Pastoral care is always needed. Love of the broken is always needed. Do that, and you will find a community gathering around you. That's still a compelling vision for church. Thank you so much, Dr. Gushy, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Pastor Life Podcast from Pinnacle Leadership Associates. You can find information about Pastor Life Podcast, about Pinnacle Leadership, at our website, pinlead.com. That's P-I-N-N-L-E-A-D.com. And we'll make sure to post a number of links and ways to connect with David Gushy in our show notes on the website. As always, we thank you for listening, and may you go and live out that compelling vision for church that Dr. David Gushy articulated so well today. God bless you.